to now tell us. I'm your host, Anthony Merore. And today we have our guest with us who is Ian Williams. Welcome to the show, Williams. Thank you, Anthony. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's beautiful. And uh, we go to our official start of the episode, which is a video welcoming the show. I believe we are going to have a great time here. And to all of you who are watching, please remember to share this uh, with your friends. And uh, let's join in the conversation. Here we go. The intro. love stories and Ian is here with us and he's going to tell us a lot of things that we are going to uh, get to hear from him and especially touching on a recovery from addiction but before we get started on that direction we would like to know uh, where are you Ian? Uh, currently calling in from Portland Oregon. Oh Okay, beautiful. And is that where you were born and that's where you grew? It is not. Uh, my wife and I are at the tail end of a two-month working road trip. Uh, came along the west coast of the United States. So um, we got another day or so here and then we'll be heading back to the Midwest. I'm um, from Minnesota. That's where I live. Ah, okay. That's, that's good. I, have, I actually have friends in Minnesota, but I don't know whether you're close by. <laughs> so sometimes you may just come across someone and you ask him, well, do you know Anthony? If he looks like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, tell us, uh, you talk about a recovery from addiction, but uh, we would like to know, uh, were you addicted? How, how was it growing up? Uh, how did you go into addiction? Because it's a story that you share. Dive us into that, please. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't necessarily know if anybody has a um, normal or typical addiction and recovery story. Um, you know, I grew up in a pretty stable home, actually. And the opportunity to, um, you know, live a, a relatively normal life was something that you know, and, and by normal, I guess, I mean, like, we were kind of middle class, you know, it was a four person family, I always lived with a dog, we had a very, I had a very stable childhood. Mm -hmm. um, I've lived in Minnesota since I was probably two years old, three years old. Um, I'm now 33. So it's been almost my entire life. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I don't necessarily think I had a typical, it wasn't like I experienced a ton of trauma growing up or significant trauma. Um, and so I don't necessarily, I didn't come into chemical use, um, and substance abuse by way of trauma or anything like that in my childhood. Um, I think, you know, I, I started using around the age of 13 and it was predominantly just, uh, now that I look back on it, self-medicating, you know, for underlying depression and anxiety. Um, so as I started around the age of 13, it was one of the things that it was one of the first things in my life that I really felt like was for me, you know, something I could do for myself. Of course, when I started, I enjoyed it a lot. It was a nice release. Um, it was a fun thing to do with friends. And, 
you know, I didn't necessarily have the cognitive abilities at the time to realize what I was trying to escape. Um, but at that time, you know, that I started using, which is around junior high, it was, you know, definitely a challenging time emotionally. And I think for everybody it is as they enter adolescence, right, and they're going through school and kind of just leaving childhood but not quite into adulthood and trying to figure out what, you know, what life is like um, in their youth. And so came into it and really enjoyed it for the first couple of years. And then after those first couple of years, I realized, you know, I don't, I don't really want to continue uh, to do this. But at that point, I realized, you know, I'm addicted. Like I can't stop. I didn't have the ability to modify my behavior and get my way out of it. So, you know, kind of long story. What what was that that you were addicted to? So I used predominantly, I mean, uh, marijuana and, Mm -hmm. you know, I got into other substances. I mean, alcohol is a very common substance in the Midwest. Um, A lot of people drink. So I started drinking before I was of age to drink. And then, you know, I experienced with other um, other drugs along the way as well. Um, it was kind of just like whatever I could get my hands on at the time. Uh, and, but, you know, over the course of the 12 years of substance use, it was, it was predominantly marijuana use and alcohol. Um, you know, so it wasn't like, again, not sure anybody has a typical story, but it wasn't necessarily like I was going into, you know, really heavy drinking, really heavy drugs and alcohol. I was still very functional. Um, I was still getting through school fine. You know, I was still, kind of maintaining relationships all right, you know, aside from those that were obviously strained with my family. Um, yeah. Yeah. And one, one of the reasons that we share these uh, stories uh, is for awareness and maybe some education to parents who are listening and they have young ones. And on that note, I would like to ask you, how was it in the introduction of all these I mean, how are you introduced? Did you just, were you curious or did someone bring you into it? That's a good question. Um, and when I think back to it, it was mostly like the first couple times, the very first couple times, it was mostly just being around friends that were doing it. Um, it wasn't like I was seeking it out in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Um, but as those friends kind of brought it around, then I realized, oh, I really enjoy this. And then it wasn't long before, I mean, it wasn't long after that, that I started seeking it out on my own, um, just through natural connections, I guess, with, with friends and peers. Yeah. Mm, Okay. And then it came a time when you had tried to stop, but it wasn't as easy as uh, it said. So how was that? Let's keep going. I mean, that, yeah, that, that stretch probably lasted almost a full decade, 10 years. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, probably by the time I got to high school, I just, I knew consciously, probably a little bit more subconsciously that, you know, like I said, I didn't want to continue to be doing it, but I didn't necessarily have the skills to stop. And at the time, as I also mentioned earlier, you know, I was self-medicating for that depression and anxiety. Um, and so I started, you know, my parents were very supportive along the way, very patient as well. Uh, God bless them. Thank you, mom and dad. Um, supportive, you know, so they got me into things like talk therapy. Um, I never went fully into chemical dependency, you know, treatment. Um, and I never needed to in the end, but started processing through some of that stuff. And I was always way more, um, opposed to pharmaceutical medications as I was self-medicating with marijuana. Uh, and you know, for better or worse, um, that's what I ended up doing. 
And so, but that awareness of not really wanting to continue probably started around sometime in high school. Um, and then, like I said, it was probably another full 10 years before I really made a concerted effort to, um, to stop. That was, you know, a successful effort. Um, so moving, you know, through high school, again, kind of pretty typical in the sense that I was, I was able to, you know, succeed in school. I was able to maintain my relationships. I got my first job, all those sorts of things. Um, and then when high school ended, I went to college and that was one thing I stayed local. So I stayed near home. It's not like I traveled across the country or anything. Um, but that was a big shift. And I think again, naturally for people that kind of grow up in a, a stable environment and then they're, you know, quote unquote out on their own, um, is a big shift. And because chemical use was something that was stable in my life and it was something that I could count on and depend on, it stayed with me as I moved through college. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had a, experience just after sophomore year. Um, I had some friends who I was living with. I sublet a room with them in the house for just the summer. And uh, we got a dog. We inherited a dog through a um, maybe a, I don't, not sure how I would say it. It wasn't the best way to inherit a dog. We'll just say that. We had some friends and they had adopted the animal. Um, their lease ended and then the, the dogs were kind of abandoned. So we ended up getting one of them. Um, just because we got a call that said, Hey, I guess my dog's locked in the basement. Can you go pick it up? And so we ended up inheriting this dog. Our lease comes to an end at the end of summer. And then we need to figure out what to do with this dog. Right. And it's kind of been this co-ed thing that we've been doing for the last couple months. Uh, and I ended up keeping her. Mm -hmm. And, but at that time, you know, I was, I went from living in the dorms to living with these guys. So I didn't really, you know, I wasn't making enough money to go get my own apartment um, anything like that. I was focused on school. I was double majoring. So I was really busy. Uh, so I ended up moving back with my parents and they, you know, they live close to school. They were reluctant, but willing to allow the dog to come back home. And I think, you know, as I kind of look back on that story, it was something that I looked at that dog as an opportunity to, you know, maybe teach me some responsibility. Like mm -hmm. if I can care for this animal, maybe I'll be able to care for myself. It wasn't necessarily conscious of that at the time, but I think that was, that was a narrative that was going on kind of underneath the surface, um, which led to, you know, about five years with this animal. And uh, her name was Trina and she was a delightful pet, but she was also, um, she had her challenges. She was a high mm -hmm. maintenance dog for sure. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, continued to use and try and navigate like finishing up school, uh, leaving school, getting my first job, um, all while having this pet. Right. And ultimately, it led to um, an experience where I had gotten my first official apartment, signed my first official lease with a friend after school uh, and brought the dog with naturally. Mm -hmm. And it turned into a, there was one night where we had some buddies over. We had some neighbors in the building that were walking through the hall. My dog got out. They had their dog with them, turned into a full on dog fight in the hallway. Um, and that was actually, I would say, my first truly traumatic experience. It was a, it was like a battle royale in the hall and I had to go out there and try and get my dog off this other dog. Um, it was a, it was a pretty traumatic experience and we got, eventually got her back in the apartment mm -hmm. and she just kind of like snapped in a, in a good way, just like came back and she looked at me and it was like the same eyes she always looked at me with, which was like, what are we going to do now? What's next? Mm -hmm. Like for her, that moment was done and she had moved on. And for me, I was definitely still in this mode of 
you know, heightened adrenaline, heightened cortisol levels, everything, you know, I was still pretty stressed out after that traumatic experience. And I knew in that moment, for whatever reason, it wasn't a conscious thought, it just kind of popped in like, I can't do this anymore. At that point, mm -hmm. it was, you know, multiple dog bites, multiple people bites, um, five years with that dog. And I just realized, like, I'm not responsible enough to, you know, give this dog the life that she deserves. And, you know, we had tried so many things over the years um, in terms of medication for the animal, therapy for the animal, training for the animal, all these things. Um, and so I talked to some of my trusted advisors when it came to the dog, you know, our dog trainer, we went to the vet at the University of Minnesota and we basically got the message like, this is not much you can do. Um, and so we made the really tough decision. I made the really tough decision to, to put her down, to let her go. Um, and that happened in December of 2013. Mm -hmm. Um, so at this point, you know, I was probably, I guess if I do the math, close to 10 years of substance use. Mm -hmm. Um, and it led to a, a pretty kind of mystical transform transformative experience. Um, we put her down on December 30th and within the week following, um, she came to visit. And it was a really, it was a really mystical experience. I was just laying in bed. I was awake. I was looking at the ceiling and felt her kind of nudge the door open. And she walked up, she hopped up on bed with me and she curled up next to me and I could see her and I could hear her, but she didn't make an imprint on the mattress. And I rolled over and I fell asleep. Mm. And at that time I was really using journaling as a way to process a lot of the emotional content that was surfacing in life. Mm -hmm. So I woke up the next morning and I started writing as if I, as if it were a dream. And when that time, probably about 20 minutes into my journaling session, I kind of had this epiphany of I was awake when that happened and I have no way to describe what happened. And I just broke down um, because it was so far outside my realm of comprehension. Mm -hmm. And that really changed my life. It completely changed the trajectory of my life. Um, it was a moment where, you know, kind of, as I was going through about 10 years of that substance use, I'd always seen myself as like someone who would practice mindfulness, you know, meditation, yoga, these things, and that they would help me get out of my addiction. And then when I had this really profound spiritual experience, it was the impetus that I needed in order to go start to explore, um, start to explore those mm -hmm. things, you know, meditation, mm -hmm. spirituality, etc. So that was a big turning point for me. Um, and it happened in 2013. And you know, the, there's a whole bunch of story that follows after that, but I'll pause here in case you want to dive in. Oh, that's interesting. So that was the turning point. Now, at this point, you are still using and you are still, were you still trying to find ways to stop it? Some, were you still actively in need to, trying and not succeeding? Yeah, I would say definitely still solidly in that space. Um, and, you know, for anyone who has personal experience with substance use and recovery, uh, particularly the substance use, at least it was my experience, there's like a love-hate relationship with it, right? Because you're using because you're getting something out of it, whatever mm -hmm. that thing is. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you're aware that it's really causing you challenges, you also hate it because you want to stop, but you can't stop. Um, again, at least that was my experience. And so, you know, I had been in talk therapy for many years at this point. 
um, and was kind of aware at that point that I was self-medicating. But then <clears throat> after, you know, the traumatic experience with the animal and the kind of spiritual experience with Trina, it was a, um, I don't know how else to describe it. It was just a kick in the pants, right? Like I'm going to go explore. Mm -hmm. And in, in some ways that experience was, um, demonstrated to me that there was a life beyond the one that I was living mm -hmm. and I was able to experience that life, not just kind of think about it intellectually. So everything kind of shifted, you know, like mm -hmm. I said, I put her down on December 30th and I'm a deeply introspective person. And so I really enjoy the new year and that kind of the renewal that comes with it. Right. Some people might call the new year's resolutions corny, but um, that's a time of year that I really enjoy. And so I decided, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make a shift. So, um, I, that year I signed up and I started training for my first marathon. It turned out to be my only marathon, but did it. Um, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I was doing a lot of writing. So I was doing a ton of journaling. I was continuing to go to talk therapy. And then I also started exploring, um, the energy arts. So I started going to yoga classes weekly, started practicing at home. Eventually yoga led to meditation Eventually meditation led to Qigong, eventually Qigong led to martial arts and Tai Chi. So I just went, you know, pretty deep down that um, kind of energy art, mindfulness-based practices rabbit hole as well um, in that year following. And that was, I think, the first time in my life that I really started to develop the tools that I could use to kind of lever my way up and out of um, substance use. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, the beginning um, I mean, it was definitely the turning point, but those skills um, and those experiences were really the first thing. It was the turning point in terms of gaining the tools that I would need to eventually get out of substance use. Mm. And which of one I would think was uh, and is writing, because I know you're writing, you still keep writing. And uh, if I'm not wrong, you're about to release your book sometime soon or is it released yet not yet okay. uh yep so i've got my first book set to be published on february 21st of 2023 mm -hmm. week mm -hmm. after valentine's day um and that book you know so at this point actually just like a week or so ago i came up on seven years of sobriety um that book is really kind of a culmination of all the things that i've learned that being said it's not autobiographical, nor is it, you know, kind of a, it doesn't have that kind of memoir autobiography feel. Um, it comes through all of the lessons that I learned and the self-reflection that happened. So when I had the opportunity to, you know, dive into these mindfulness-based practices, I really started to learn a lot about myself because I was experiencing a different side of myself. I was allowing some of those emotions like the depression and the anxiety, the things that were causing the depression and anxiety to surface. I was processing through them, learning how to regulate them, learning how to respond to them. And those, uh, those skills really taught me a bunch of lessons about self-development and self-cultivation. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately they led to, and this is fast forwarding a little bit, but ultimately they led to an awareness that, you know, if we want to have a positive impact in the world, I think the best way to do that is to really do our own deep internal work. Mm -hmm. Uh, and doing that deep internal work can be really challenging, you know, and it can be, it can be scary for people who don't necessarily feel like they have the skills, right? Like myself, but I just kind of dove in head first and I just tried to figure it out. Um, and so the book, uh, the title is Soil and Spirit, and that's a central thesis around it is if you want to have a, 
you know, a positive impact in the world, mm-hmm. we got to first do that deep internal work ourselves so that we know, you know, for lack of a better term, who we are and how we can best serve. Soil and spirit. That's mm-hmm. an interesting. So how did you come up with that title? So, you know, I've mentioned the mindfulness-based practices and the energy arts as being really kind of fundamental to my recovery process. The other thing that was really fundamental to my recovery process was nature, time in nature, mm-hmm. um, and learning a lot of lessons about, you know, what the natural world has to offer. So one of the things that happened in my recovery was I just, I just started consuming a lot of information, um, you know, trying, again, trying to build the skill set to, to um, make my way into recovery. And that came with, I, I took a, a several permaculture training. So if people aren't familiar with permaculture, it's a regenerative design philosophy, typically used for, you know, natural environments, things like building landscapes, uh, regenerative landscapes, gardening, etc. Um, and I really fell in love with that kind of body of knowledge and the philosophy and the design principles. But along the way, I realized I'm not necessarily passionate about getting my hands in the dirt. It's something that I think absolutely, I mean, it needs to happen clearly in terms of addressing climate change at a global scale. Mm-hmm. But over the course of, you know, several years of self-reflection, I realized that's not really my fundamental skill set. My fundamental skill set is helping people cultivate self-awareness uh, and self-development mm-hmm. and learning those lessons and teaching those lessons because that's my professional background is education. Uh, and now I'm working as a consultant, but there's still a lot of that education that's happening. And so as I studied permaculture and the design philosophies, it also got me just outside more often. So, you know, whether it was just walks in the park, hikes in the woods, camping, you know, in the in the Midwest, in Minnesota, we've got the Boundary Waters, which is this massive um, wilderness space that you can only take a canoe into. Um, so just kind of that wilderness immersion and just started studying the natural environment, right? And mm-hmm. one of the things that I learned was like, diversity is what creates resilience in nature, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. just took that lesson and started applying it to my life. How do I create a diversity of experiences? How do I create diversity of thought, emotions, etc.? Um, and I, I, so I was integrating all of those concepts and I think kind of studying and learning from the natural world and paired that with all of my energy arts experiences and, you know, some, some more profound spiritual experiences that happened as I was, um, practicing and started to pair those things together. So the title soil and spirit is really kind of a nod to, uh, one nature naturally, but then also that there are these foundational principles that we can apply to personal and spiritual development, right? There's a soil to spirituality, so to speak. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so the subtitle of the book is Seeds of Purpose, Nature's Insight, and the Deep Work of Transformational Change. So moving into the lessons that I'd learned from the natural world, I was able to kind of apply those things to my own personal and spiritual development and vice Mm -hmm. versa. Um, and And that was really a major turning point in terms of like anchoring into my um, sobriety and recovery process because I started to, you know, I had kind of developed these skill sets in terms of the mindfulness-based practices to kind of regulate my emotions. But then I also had, um, I could go into wilderness as a form of escaping. And that's really, you know, largely what I was trying to do with my substance use was I was just trying to escape whatever I was experiencing. But that escaping into wilderness really brought me closer to myself. 
Okay. And because you've got uh, so many people who have assisted you along the way, that, uh, mentioning your parents, you thanked them. It's always good to look back and thank those who has, uh, have helped us along the way. Um, what would you consider to be the best thing or the most uh, productive uh, way or person that helped you recover and added to your spiritual experience that you had that brought you to the realization that you need to make a change? I think the most uh, impactful individual was undoubtedly the person that I met who's now my wife. Um, she was, her name's Julie. Uh, if anyone's interested, you can visit her website at julieshannonwilliams.com. She was the person that I met. Uh, I met her in yoga class who she didn't really know my background. And again, for people who have used uh, substances or abused substances, sometimes there's this you know, you, you really want to get clean, but all the people who know your past and they know your experiences, they've kind of heard you cry wolf so many times that it starts to be like a, we'll believe it when we see it. Mm -hmm. And I was picking up that energy a lot from people in my life. As I was saying, you know, I'm going to try and get clean. I'm really going to, I'm really going to do it this time. And you just kind of like the boy who cried wolf type of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I met her and she didn't really know my past. And so she didn't really have that energy about her at all. Mm -hmm. um, and she's been undoubtedly the most supportive person um, who has come into my life, you know, easily within the last decade. But, uh, you know, I mean, she became my life partner, my wife, my friend. And um, in the recovery community, sometimes it's advised that you don't take on a committed relationship within the first couple of years of sobriety because you're still mm -hmm. trying to figure yourself out. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not necessarily one to do things by the book. And, um, we dove into a relationship pretty quickly and she was really, really patient along the way. Right. As I continued to try and individuate, um, super, super patient, super compassionate, and, you know, always just provided a safe space to come home to and supportive. Right. And I think those were really the things I needed, um, at that time in terms of like seeking external validation, right. Because, all of this internal muck was surfacing and it was a really messy process to deal with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so to have someone who's just willing to receive me was profoundly impactful. Yeah. It really counts what we do uh, with ourselves, self-reflection and uh, the actions that we take. But it's also a very important thing if we have people surrounding us that are supportive and we are happy for you that you have a supportive uh, spouse and uh, it's a desire that we all have people who are encouraging us along the way uh, showing us the way to go that will be very good yeah yeah I, I think having that having that external environment or having that that social support network is really key mm -hmm. um and you know as someone who i didn't go to uh like an inpatient rehab i didn't i didn't go to chemical dependency uh treatment i was just kind of seeking it on my own and kind of piecemealing things together um, having those people in your life is profoundly important. The other thing that I would say too, Anthony is, you know, you ask what were some of the things that like made for success, mm -hmm. the things that make for the other, I would say the other half, maybe more than half of the equation was not just supportive people, but it was also that self-discovery process. And I would mm -hmm. use that, that word discovery very intentionally. Um, 
you know, when, when my dog came to visit, it kind of like blew the lid off what I thought reality was. And I just realized I got to dive in head first. Right. And I just need to go discover and explore. Mm. And that was externally, right. New experiences, new people, new settings, but it was also internally. I need mm. to dive inward and I need to figure out, you know, why did I start using in the first place? What can I learn about myself along the way? And so that commitment to that self-discovery process through whatever means necessary for me, it was, you know, predominantly writing and energy art practices uh, and time in nature, whatever that process is, that self-discovery process, that's what I think the most impactful thing that we can all do. Um, mm. Because the more we learn about ourselves, the more intimate we can be in our connections with ourselves, as well as the connections with others and the natural world. Mm, wonderful. And at this point, I want to thank each and every person who's watching us or listening to us. And even if you got to watch this or listen to this after we are through with the broadcast, we thank you for taking your time. And we really appreciate any feedback that you may have for us. Uh, let me mention one of the people who are watching us. God save David says that's a great book for this generation. Thank you, God save. We appreciate Yes. Now, what are the things that you're currently doing? Uh, because you, yeah, tell us whatever it is that you would like us to know. Yeah. So uh, during during the pandemic, I went back to graduate school uh, and I completed my degree this past May of 2022. Um, and that was really a big shift professionally. So as I was going through all of that personal transformation, I really kind of got the entrepreneurial bug. Um, and so there's kind of two halves to what I'm doing professionally right now. One, obviously the book is um, a major kind of foundational pillar in terms of my professional work. I'm really excited for that launch and that release. Um, I'm hoping that it's, you know, it's fundamentally an act of service. So I'm really hoping that a lot of people read it and get value from it. But that kind of, it speaks to one half of what I'm doing, which is uh, professional teaching, education, speaking around personal and spiritual development. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, I'm happy to share my story, whether it be on podcasts like this or public speaking opportunities. Uh, and then the other half is something I learned along the way was I wanted to, you know, I wanted to give back and I wanted to have a greater impact in the world. And I did a lot of thinking about how to do that. Right. And so I shared earlier that uh, getting my hands in the dirt wasn't necessarily my expertise. Mm -hmm. um, and where I've kind of nestled into is impact driven, mission driven organizations who are looking to make the world a better place, whether it's through, you know, climate change, addressing social or environmental justice, um, those are really the areas that I'm passionate about. And so the other thing that I'm doing professionally is working as a consultant with those mission-driven organizations, helping them build culture and capacity. So I just kind of naturally learned along the way that I've got this kind of organizational management type skill set. Uh, I'm really focused on impact. And I'm also, I have a ton of experience in personal well-being just through my own personal journey. Uh, it's also something that I'm interested in that I study on my own time, you know, read articles, blogs, books, etc. And so <clears throat> I'm working with organizations as well to help them kind of scale their impact while making their place um, healthier for their employees, right? Making a healthier organizational culture. Because I really believe that those mission-driven organizations are fundamental to the larger impact that we need to have in the world right now. For example, mm -hmm. addressing things like um, climate change, social justice, Etc. So those are kind of the two things that I'm doing professionally at this point. Um, mm -hmm. Again, personal and spiritual development, and then consulting with organizations on scaling culture and capacity. And then, you know, in my personal and my free time, 
I still stay true to all of those self-discovery tools that I learned along the way. Um, you know, I'm still getting out in nature. I'm still journaling, still practicing my energy arts, you know, meditating, mindfulness-based practices. And those things are really foundational to my health. And so, you know, some people might call them a hobby. Um, for me, they're, they're just integral to my health and well-being. And so those are all things that are still, you know, deeply personal and I'm still connected to as well. Mm. God Save would like to have the synopsis of the book. Is it available yet? Yeah, okay. um, absolutely. So the book is, again, Soil and Spirit is the title. And it's really a commentary about us doing our own deep individual work in order to help address some of the grand challenges of our time, again, like social or environmental justice. Uh, but it also uses nature as an analogy and a touch point throughout. So the book has four different sections. Um, the first one is about the internal landscape. So it's all about kind of the inner domain of the human being. The second section is about the social landscape, um, society at large. The third section is about the physical environment or physical landscape, the natural world. And then the fourth section is about the spiritual landscape. And so it's really this kind of concentric ring approach to personal and spiritual development with the central ethos that that's the best thing that we can do to serve others, to serve ourselves, to serve the planet at large is our own personal self-discovery and self-cultivation work. Um, so I hope that that's, you know, uh, a synopsis that, that brings God Save a bit closer to um, knowing a little bit more about the book. I'm happy to share more to um, the book description you can find on the website, uh, my website, www.reviveuni.com. Um, and I'm also happy to connect too personally. If anybody wants to, you know, reach out, send me a note, find me on social media. It's the same handle, reviveuni.com or reviveuni. Um, happy to share more too. Yes. So once again, that's www.reviveuni.com. You can go and connect with Ian for more on what we discussed in this episode and now we are just about to sign off from as, uh, this episode but before we go we'd like ian to leave us with a few words that we should always remember what are they ian <laughs> you know i think uh i love this question but i always find it a bit challenging to answer and i think something that has been central to my life is this notion that personal cultivation is what's going to lead to planetary transformation. So if I could just encourage everyone out there to continue to do their own self-discovery work, continue to invest in their own self-cultivation process, I truly believe that's what's going to lead to planetary transformation. It's going to give you more skills, more awareness, um, the tools to really have a greater impact in the world. And for me, as someone who has received a ton of support from others in my own you know, journey of addiction and recovery, my life is now completely oriented around service to others um, as I do the best to maintain my own well-being along the way. And so that's really where I feel like um, we can have the greatest impact. And as you, the listener, learn more about yourself, it'll teach you how to show up in the world. It'll teach you where you can best be of service and how you can have the greatest impact. So I guess those would be the, the words that I would leave. That personal cultivation is what's going to lead to planetary transformation. Wow, that's cool. Sounds cool. I like it. And I hope every person who's watching or listening likes it too, as I do. 
So we really want to thank you very much, Ian, for taking your time, being with us and telling us all that you've told us here. As we also thank all the viewers, all the listeners, uh, those who are watching us live and listening to us, and those who get to do so after we have signed off. And uh, that's about it for today. It's been a wonderful time with all of us around. I've been your host, Anthony Moirore. And together with Ian Williams, we are saying bye for now. Bye. See you, Anthony.